Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which explores the details behind how space systems come together and what lessons are learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and this week's episode will explore the process that was used to analyze and determine the mission architecture for NASA's Atmospheric Observing System, or AOS for short. AOS is a constellation of four small sats which will help characterize aerosol, cloud, convection, and precipitation processes to give insight into extreme weather events as well as climate change. The spacecraft have been designed to complement each other with their instrument suite as well as their orbits. So two spacecraft will operate in an inclined orbit to capture how processes change in the small timescale. So this is on the order of seconds to days. The other two spacecraft will operate in a polar orbit, provide insight on how these processes evolve over long periods of time. So this includes days to several years. This will help capture the long-term impact these have on our environment. Now, there is a wide range of instruments used on this mission, which are split amongst the spacecraft. This includes radar to measure clouds and the liquid particle motions, LIDAR for measuring aerosol and cloud backscatter. Other properties will be derived from microwave radiometers, far infrared imaging radiometers, polarimeters, and limb sensors. We will get into how all of those benefit the science in this episode. The project is led by NASA Goddard and supported by international partnerships as well. This includes with Japan, Canada, and France who are developing spacecraft and instruments alike to support the mission. Ultimately, AOS is being designed to significantly influence the next decade of scientific research in aerosols and cloud processes and enable us to improve our understanding of our Earth and how we can help it. That being said, developing a mission architecture which could maximize the science return was a massive undertaking. The objectives of AOS are built on recommendations provided by the 2017 Earth Sciences Decadal Survey. But to define the right way to address these, a group of scientists and engineers spent a little over a year studying different ideas for mission architectures based on input received from the broader community. Now, during this process, over 100 possible architectures were developed and waited for their scientific utility before they settled on the right approach for AOS. So I had the fortunate opportunity to dive into this architecture study with Dr. Scott Braun, who is the project scientist for the AOS mission and has been with the program since the study began back in 2018. Dr. Braun is a research meteorologist at NASA Goddard, specializing in hurricanes, specifically how these form and intensify, including their interaction with the Saharan air layer. He's also the project scientist for the Tropic SmallSat constellation, which has already had a significant impact on our ability to monitor and understand hurricanes. As far as other hats he's worn, Dr. Brown has been the principal investigator for NASA's Hurricane and Severe Storm Sentinel, or HS3. He's also been the project scientist for the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission, GOAZAR, and the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission. He has received numerous awards, including Fellow of the American Meteorological Society, the Goddard Earth Science Achievement Award, the NASA Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal, and several other group achievement awards. Overall, he's just a really cool guy who agreed to be another victim of one of my interviews. So, uh, in terms of the specifics of this episode, we will explore the mission architecture study and lessons that can be learned from it. And this includes the general approach to designing and analyzing different combinations of instruments and spacecraft platforms, and what strategies were used to quantify the impact that each architecture could have on the science objectives. We will also cover how the study trades developed over time as the team learned more and more about what worked and what didn't work. And finally, we'll discuss the challenges associated with trying to derive an architecture 
that could provide the most impact to the scientific community. While we discuss the strategies used in necking down to what the AOS mission is today, in order to understand what was done, we dove a lot into the science motivation and why certain things were important to prioritize having in the mission architecture. Now that being said, this was such a cool conversation on how the study team took a very squishy problem and actually made it very tangible, and I'm glad that I have the opportunity to share that with all of you. So without further ado, please enjoy this very informative, wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Scott Braun. go for recording so okay awesome uh, i guess do you have any like questions or anything before we just kind of hop into it no i'm pretty much ready okay. cool i hope so <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> <laughs> okay uh that's that's good you're, you're going into it uh going into it very brave <laughs> um, uh all right. Well, in that case, I guess we'll we'll hop right into it. So I, yeah, I I just like to, you know, first of all, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with me about AOS. Like this is, I only learned about this briefly or not briefly recently because I went to um, AGU back in December, um, and okay. it was kind of like my first real like exposure to all things climate and heliosphere, and so you know, just like learning about. Um, where AOS is now, and I, I thought it was such a cool mission, given that you know these four spacecraft all complement each other like very beautifully, and um, are are just are going to teach us a lot about um, you know aerosols and, and cloud processes. Um, and and then when I was looking at papers for this, I saw sort of the paper that you guys published a while back about just the trades that you had to do to think about the science objectives and the mission architecture. And um, I think like, given that that's just a massive like system analysis problem, I was uh, just curious to talk to you about what it was like to actually do that, what lessons were learned and how, it, you know, as, as we do, I guess this also felt very relevant because I think like, looking into the future with say like lunar missions and different architectures people will want to develop it's i feel like we're going to get more into that zone where we're trying to really parse out like what architectures make sense and think about all of these trades so i don't know i i thought it would be kind of a great great way to um transition some lessons learned there so i appreciate it okay. um right. I, I guess oh sorry were you gonna no no yeah. Okay. Um, I guess to get started, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and just where your love for studying atmospheric sciences came from. Uh, yes, I uh, grew up in California, and I, I, I'll admit, as uh, you know, a meteorologist now, I, I was not one of those who grew up knowing I wanted to study weather. In fact, I, I went to college starting off as an accounting major. Um, but my first semester there, when I was trying to sign up for classes, you know, we, we signed up over the phone initially. And then if you didn't get a full schedule, you had to go into the gym and sign up. And so I signed up for a bunch of classes. I needed one more and I, I don't like crowds. So I was looking around the gym, just wanted to get out of there. And I see this table that has two signs on it. 
one says geology, the other says meteorology. Uh, there was one person at the geology line, nobody at the meteorology line. So I went and signed up for a meteorology class. <laughs> um, and it, it just helped that I, I had a professor there who was really into severe weather. Um, his vacations were to go to Oklahoma and chase storms. And I kind of caught the bug from him. Um, and also growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, you don't see thunderstorms much, at least not significant ones. And we had storms come up from Southern California that just produced constant cloud to ground lightning. And I spent an hour in the middle of the night watching it. And I, I was just in awe of it. And I don't know, somehow over the course of that uh, semester, I just kind of fell in love with the topic and decided that was the path I wanted to follow. That's awesome. I, uh, I uh, This makes me think back to, um, I worked on a, a CubeSat at Arizona State and part of it incorporated students who were studying meteorology and um because we were studying urban heat islands by taking mm -hmm. thermal images of the earth and i don't know we just have side conversations about like meteor meteor i can't say <laughs> meteorological <laughs> processes and yes. like the modeling that goes into them and you know there's all of these just like how you're accounting for um you know, different conditions at different altitudes. And, you know, they were like, the students were just so passionate about it. Um, and it, it's, it was just very, it was very cool and inspiring to just hear them talk about their field. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. A lot of people in the field are, are pretty um, excited about it. And, and, you know, I, I had a friend in grad school who um, had a little thermometer he stuck out of his car window, you know, attached to a wire. And the four cars had their own thermometers and he would drive around the area looking for at the little microclimates everywhere he went. <laughs> Did you ever actually get to go chase storms? Uh, sort of in California. I, I was doing um, a senior thesis on California tornadoes, which tend to happen in Southern California and in the Central Valley. And there was one day where the conditions looked good. My professor and I decided to go out and see if we can spot anything. And, and we did sort of see a funnel cloud. We were, I don't know, a good distance away. It didn't reach the ground, but you could see this funnel kind of hanging down from the bottom of the, the cloud base. So we figured that was somewhat of a success uh, for California. <laughs> Nothing exciting like compared to Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I grew up in Arizona and it was like most of the weather is the same, but like when you got desert storms, those were really cool. So yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, <laughs> I didn't purposefully ever go storm chasing in those, but I have gotten caught in like a haboob. Um, my mom and I were outside and we got caught in one and that was, uh, that was an experience. <laughs> I don't think I would do that again. <laughs> I, I would be interested in experiencing it at least once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess maybe transitioning more to like your role in AOS now, how did, how did you first get in, involved in this? I know the, the um, decadal survey came out and had guidance for sort of where to focus next. Um, and that kind of gave birth to this whole larger study that we'll go into, but I'm, I'm curious about how that came to be. Um, I think part of it stems from having played a role in the TRIM and GPM precipitation missions. I was project scientist for TRIM for several years. And then right about the time the decadal survey came out, I became the GPM project scientist. Uh, GPM is the global precipitation measurement mission. Um, 
And so I think based on that experience and just involvement in other activities uh, and with my particular background, um, I was asked to uh, play a role in the study to kind of represent the community that's focused on convection, clouds and precipitation and partnered with somebody else here at Goddard who was focused more on aerosols. Um, and so we kind of co-led the, the, the study effort with um, similar in individuals at other NASA agencies as well as universities. Um, but I think it's because of my you know, past experience that I was kind of given the nod to do it. Okay, that, that also answers kind of a, just a general, like I know for the decadal surveys, people kind of get tapped on the shoulder to sort of give input there. So I was, I was curious if it followed, um, I guess, a similar structure <laughs> in, in that sense. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, in trying to put the study participants together, each of the centers who do earth science kind of look to the experience of their uh, folks, their scientists, and tried to identify people who had the right experience topically in terms of the science they do, as well as some degree of uh, project experience. Mm -hmm. um, although admittedly, a lot of us had been involved in missions one way or another, but not too many of us uh, had been involved at the very early stages of a mission. So it was kind of a growing experience for many of us. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it, 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 you know, it worked out well anyway. I mean, as a, a relatively new team, we had our bumps along the way, but um, we had a great team that had a, a wealth of experience, um, kind of a range from um, some younger scientists and, and but more mid-career and later career scientists. Okay. Well, that's, that's awesome um, that you were able to kind of get a mix in there as well. Maybe kind of leaning off of that a little bit. Um, so I think one of the, the questions that I had regarding just the timeline of events. Um, so basically the, the AOS, the, the study sort of started with a decadal. Um, you guys got together, determined the mission objectives or the, not the mission objectives, but like the science objectives that you really wanted to uh, obtain with the mission um, that, that hit, you know, key areas of, of study that, that we need to Im improve on for just the science community. Um, and so your proposal was accepted by NASA, uh, as I understand. Um, and then, so once you started, once you got the go and you actually started working on things, like how did you sort of decide on the general approach that you would take to, you know, we, we have sort of key goals that we, we want to, to meet. Um, mm. we know that, you know, we need to have sort of a, a, a system of, spacecraft to do this um how did you go about understanding like what input you wanted to have like what how how to set yourself up for doing um you know say the the architecture workshops that um you you guys decided to do to sort of neck down on um what the system needed to look like uh yeah was did that seem straightforward or was there um you know, and error. Recently, I mean, there's a, there's a certain process for, for doing this, and, and we had a good project management team to guide us along the way. Um, the decadal survey had listed a number of science objectives 
that, that they envision being accomplished uh, as part of the next decade. Um, some of those objectives uh, were broad enough that they sort of spanned what multiple missions might provide data for rather than a single mission. And so one of the first things we had to do was think about casting some of those science objectives in terms of what aspect AOS would be responsible for. Because uh, we, we couldn't be responsible for measurements that weren't relevant to our particular mission, uh, even though all of those things would contribute to the overall decadal survey objective. So we, we started off trying to recast those objectives um, based on the science uh, that was laid out, uh, focusing on aerosols, clouds, and precipitations. Um, we had to kind of make a decision about whether we were focusing on like mapping of these observables versus trying to understand processes, um, you know, which requires different approaches. So, for mm -hmm. example, to get at processes, you want to get measurements that are coincident in time and space, looking at different aspects of aerosols, clouds, and precipitation and how they interact. If you're doing, and for that, you might need more sophisticated measurements um, that are on a single satellite, whereas mapping, you might go with, um, you know, a small set approach that gives you wide swath and good temporal coverage uh, for the mapping, but doesn't necessarily um, get you more information or higher quality information than what you've been able to do in the past. So those are the types of things that we had to look at. Uh, so we defined our science objectives. We divided that into about eight different objectives, um, kind of following three different themes. We were interested in aerosols, uh, including their distribution and properties, and basically their evolution from when they're first emitted from the surface, how they're moved around by the winds, and then eventually removed from the atmosphere. Um, we wanted to understand convective storms better. Um, you know, the, these storms are responsible for a lot of the damage that occurs, uh, in fact, over the last four decades, according to data from NOAA, you know, if you think in terms of billion dollar disasters, we've seen about a, a sevenfold increase in these billion dollar disasters over the last 40 years, much of which is due to severe thunderstorms and tropical storms. Not to say that we've necessarily seen more intense or more storms, because part of that is the infrastructure has grown and you know, we've had development that means more property that can be damaged. But almost certainly with climate change, we expect that some of that is related to increasing severity storms or increasing numbers of storms. Uh, and we wanted to get information on the dynamics of storms. So how are the vertical motions that generate the liquid wa and liquid water or ice water content? How does that relate to the storm structure and evolution and the amount of precipitation that's generated? We've had observations of clouds and precipitation before, but not so much the vertical air motions except by airborne measurements. So this was a, a rather unique thing that the Decadal Survey had called out. And then the last theme related to uh, climate sensitivity and feedback. So, you know, how do low and high clouds feed back to climate by either reflecting solar radiation or trapping terrestrial radiation? Uh, how do aerosols uh, like smoke, dust, and things of that nature uh, interact uh, with uh, radiation to, to warm or cool the, the atmosphere? or modify clouds and precipitation and how they interact with radiation. Uh, we were interested, you know, a lot of clouds that we were focusing on were, you know, looking at the liquid phase or strictly the ice phase if it's high clouds, but we know we have regimes where we get both liquid and ice simultaneously in 
cloud systems, which can alter how they interact with radiation. So that was another aspect of it. So we had all these different objectives, but they, they mostly fit along those three themes of aerosols, convection, and climate sensitivity and feedback. Uh, once we did that, the difficult process that took a fair bit of time was coming up with the science traceability matrix. So having our objectives, all right, well, what geophysical variables do we need to measure um, in order to achieve the science? To get those geophysical variables, what uh, measurements do you need? And then from what types of instruments? The decadal survey had given some guidance uh, on the sort of approaches that they envisioned. They had a candidate architecture that mentioned uh, a, a Doppler radar, um, a, a LIDAR for profiling aerosols and clouds, um, a passive microwave radiometer, which is often used to detect the amount of liquid water or ice in the column, um, and a multi-wavelength, multi-angle polarimeter that uh, by using the multi-angle approach uh, and, and looking at the different polarization of light, you can get uh, pro you know, the layer uh, properties of aerosols, like how basically how much aerosol there is, um, what its uh, radiative characteristics are, and uh, things like particle size, as well as for clouds, you can get information at cloud top of uh, particle size and concentration uh, and phase. Uh, so they had recommended those types of things, uh, but we were asked as part of the study not to just quickly move to that solution, but to consider a broad range of solutions um, that might involve a single large satellite to a collection of you know, mid-sized satellites and even constellations of a, a lot of small sats and, and see how that would achieve the, the science. And so that we spent a lot of time really thinking through, um, you know, working on that science traceability matrix, which was one of the more complex ones we'd ever worked on. In fact, we had to do a multi-page PowerPoint version of it instead of a, like a, a one-page layout because oh, yeah. it, the, the science is just so complex that we, we couldn't simplify it um, to, to just fit on a nice printed page. <laughs> um, and then we also had a meeting. So we started the study in October of 2018. We worked for several months on the science traceability matrix. And then in April of 2019, we kind of presented that science traceability matrix and the objectives to the science community at a workshop to get feedback on what we were doing before we got started with the architecture uh, workshops. Um, one of the things we needed to do the workshops uh, was to have an understanding of what sort of technologies of interest were available. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we couldn't start from scratch with instruments. We needed to have things, concepts that not necessarily fully mature, but sort of midway to full maturity. Um, and so we put out a request for information uh, to get information on instrument concepts, um, and, and, and including for radars, LIDARs, and a variety of, of types of instruments that are relevant to what we were doing. And we got a good response, um, information on the capabilities, the mass and power, and other things that help you to evaluate you know, what it would take to put that on a spacecraft and fly it in combination with other instruments and what the potential costs might be and things of that sort. So once we got that, the responses from that RFI, we essentially created an instrument library. Think of it as a bunch of Lego pieces that you could then start putting together to form architectures. And that was sort of the, the approach that we took going into the, the first architecture construction workshop that we did. So to sort of follow up with that, so I, I... One thing that popped into my head kind of at the end was, you know, the the architecture that you guys have 
now uses CubeSats. Um, when you solicited for instruments from just the general aerospace community, did a lot of them come to you saying like, we can put this on a CubeSat? Because I, I know at least, um, like I feel like a lot of R&D over the you know past a handful of years has um, really gone into like reducing the swap so that things can actually fit into CubeSats and um, you know, all that technology development takes takes years. Um, and with this starting in 2018, um, I guess I don't remember like how much was really available. I know when when we were looking at CubeSats like in 2015, there was you know very little, and I think people were still kind of building up to to using them. So I'm curious if you guys had to you know, look at an architecture someone gave you and say, we'd really like to, we really like the resolution. Um, you know, are, can we make it smaller or any, anything like that? Or if you were able to use everything that you had. Yeah, we actually don't have CubeSats in the constellation, uh, but we have instruments that are compatible with what we call small sats. So they're not quite as, um, small as a CubeSat. Um, and we, we had, instruments in our library that span the full range from CubeSat instruments to small set instruments to very large instruments. Um, and part of what we had to determine and, 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 and part of the challenge, and I think it hit us pretty solidly in the first workshop that we did was we, you know, we started off with some of the bigger instruments that we knew were more capable. Mm -hmm. And then we saw the cost and then, yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> but yeah. we also knew that the CubeSats really aren't far enough along to do the advanced science that we wanted to do. And so we started looking at some of these, something more in the middle range that might fit on a small set, maybe not quite as capable as we would ideally want, but due to technological advances, we knew that some of the radar concepts and uh, passive microwave radio radiometer concepts had taken advantage of miniaturization efforts. And so maybe they don't fit on a CubeSat, but given a, a reasonably small size bus, you could still do that and do good science with it. So mm -hmm. we spent a fair about a fair uh, bit of time exploring capabilities in that sort of uh, middle size range. Uh, and, and that ultimately is what we did with most of the instruments. Um, the radar and the LIDAR, um, were a bit bigger. Um, the radar was big because it required two big uh, antennas, but the electronics and all that weren't necessarily big. Uh, the LIDAR itself for what we were initially trying to do was, was a very capable LIDAR, but also fairly large. Um, so that was a bit more of a challenge. Um, you know, and then one of the other things we had to do along with assessing what the potential cost might be for different architectures, we had to figure out, well, all right, how do we, assess whether this has got high scientific value. Uh, and so we worked with Langley Research Center that uh, had a team that does what's called a value framework that allows you to fairly uh, objectively um, you know, assess the uh, science benefit of particular options. Um, that was certainly a challenging process. It had never, I, I don't know if it had been done quite to scale for the type of project we were doing. And um, we had to be pretty creative in, in the approaches and it required a lot of effort um, from the science team to do, to do the 
quantitative assessments. So we started off early in the studies looking at the architectures and evaluating them qualitatively through our just expert judgment and kind of rating different aspects of the, of the architectures on a scale of one to five. And then we kind of look at the scores that way. While we were doing that more subjectively early on, we were building the infrastructure in terms of simulations and retrieval algorithm capabilities to eventually do quantitative assessments um, that we did later in the study before making our final recommendations to headquarters. And that took a pretty big effort on part of the science team. But in the end, I think it was pretty valuable. Can I ask more about what the retrieval algorithms look like? Is, um, was that something that evaluated the instruments themselves and the kind of products that you could get out of them? It, it doesn't evaluate the instrument itself, but it, it says, well, given, you know, let's take a radar as an example, you know, the return power we often talk about as a radar reflectivity in decibels. Um, and we have relationships um, for converting that into a rainfall rate. Um, sometimes it depends on what you assume about the raindrops or the ice particles and how reflective they are, uh, their size distribution and such. But we have these algorithms that you input the reflectivity and the output is uh, a, rain, a profile of rainfall rate or snowfall rate or something to that effect. So our, our science algorithms are the ones that take the original measurements from the instruments and convert that into the geophysical variables that we're interested in. Oh, okay, I see. That's very interesting. I didn't, um, I, di I didn't know that that was kind of used as a, um, it, it makes a lot of sense that that would be used as a, as a way to assess an uh, in, in instrument, but um, yeah, I've, I've never, uh, I guess I've never been in anything that's kind of used that before. So, <laughs> I, I hadn't either. We we spent a lot of time coming up with the ways that we would do it, um, and later on, um, you know, we can always talk about how we assess quality versus utility of of uh, different uh, uh, geophysical variables and observations, which kind of formulate the basis for uh, uh, the overall science benefit. Um, mm -hmm but the, the, the quality assessment was looking at the capabilities of the instrument and how accurately it might measure uh, a given quantity at what resolution um, and, and things of that nature, uh, what sensitivity it may have to measuring, you know, see, detecting clouds or precipitation and things of that nature. Um, and then uh, the utility sort of defined, well, how important are different geophysical variables to addressing the, the science questions or objectives. Uh, and then we kind of combine the information from both of those to assess the science benefit. Is, um, is there a good example of maybe the utility for different instruments that you might look at? Um, like, a, you know, how much area you might be able to sort of gather with a you know, radar versus like a um, you know, one of the, the limb sensors and something like that. Yeah, generally, we, we were looking at, um, like, if we had a requirement to um, measure, well, let's just say precipitation again, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, cl clouds and precipitation evolve on um, short temporal scales, and they occur on, on fairly small spatial scales. So, Resolution of the measurement is important. Your ability to penetrate precipitation. So for certain radar frequencies, 
the signal gets attenuated so that you can't penetrate, say, a deep thunderstorm. Um, whereas other radar frequencies can penetrate the thunderstorm, but they can't see the lighter cloud. They don't have the sensitivity for the lighter uh, cloud around it. And so um, if we had a requirement to measure precipitation of a certain rate or detect a certain fraction of the, of the cloud, you would look at the radar character, instrument characteristics and determine what sensitive, you know, what sensitivity it had, uh, and how well that led to the retrieval of a precipitation rate and over over what depth of a potential storm and, and things of that nature. Or for aerosols, you know, how accurately could you measure the uh, the uh, optical depth of or uh, of, of the aerosol there. So how much aerosol was there? That depends on assumptions about the aerosol characteristics. Uh, it depends on the instrument capabilities. And um, for some types of LIDARs that are used to profile aerosols, it gives you uh, one piece of information for two unknowns. And so you have to make assumptions about the other unknown in order to get a retrieval. Whereas other more advanced technologies actually give you two pieces of information so that you can get a much more accurate uh, retrieval of the aerosol properties. So it was those types of things that we would look at in terms of the capabilities of the instrument and how that translated into the ability to measure uh, a geophysical uh, property uh, accurately and you know, with sufficient uh, uh, ability to you know, either penetrate a storm or detect things that might be faint cloud or faint aerosol layers that while hard to see are important in terms of the, the climate and related processes. And were all of those uh, essentially weighted against what you had in your science traceability matrix? So like any metrics you had for accuracy, resolution, is that what kind of drove, you know, you weighting something as maybe a five versus a four? Yes, so this, this is where uh, the science traceability matrix gets a bit more complex because we added in stuff that helped with the value framework. So for every geophysical variable, we gave it a, what we call the utility weight. So on a scale of one to five, how important is it to addressing that objective? And that, that is somewhat subjective, but we know from experience that to retrieve rainfall rate, something like the radar reflectivity is really important uh, you know or getting that profile of, of uh, rainfall rate is really important but getting um, some other aspect of precipitation um, might be useful but doesn't provide as much information in, in getting a, a good retrieval or, or addressing the science um, and, and so we spent a lot of time debating and and trying to reach agreement on how much weight to give different geophysical variables to accomplish the science. And then in the science traceability matrix, we, we have uncertainty requirements for the different geophysical variables. And so through the retrieval process, using say a simulated cloud or a simulated aerosol layer, we would simulate what the observations would look like. We, we'd run that through our retrieval algorithm to generate estimates of the geophysical variables. And then we would look at um, how accurately we measured that variable versus what our requirement was. And of course, the closer, the more you met the requirement, the, the higher that quality score was. And if you were really struggling to meet the, the accuracy requirement, it got a low score. Uh, and, and so you combine the quality 
with the utility and it gives a, an overall weighting towards the science benefit. And then you can kind of sum that up over all the geophysical variables that contribute to a, a given objective. Um, wow, that is complex. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to think of like how it, um, just even deriving that approach in the first place, I, I imagine must have been sort of difficult to, you know, kind of get your head around. Um, it very much was. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything, I don't, I don't know, that, that just made, sort of helped tie that process in for you and in terms of like, what would be the best approach? I don't know if that's a good question, but. <laughs> um, it was something we struggled with. I mean, on paper, it seemed straightforward to, to say, you know, what we thought the utility was of different variables. We kind of know based on years of research that certain variables are more important than others to addressing a, a science problem. The uh, quality assessment really depended on, on getting a good set of simulations that represented the phenomena of interest. Um, and it also meant that we had to have algorithm code that was actually already available to do the retrievals, which in some cases where we had new instrument concepts, you know, things that hadn't really flown before, but are, you know, reasonable, you know, sort of in the right technology readiness that we were looking at, we had to kind of develop some retrieval algorithms to help with that assessment. And that was a real challenge. Uh, and then we, we still found various ways in which it was difficult to, we, we, despite all the effort, we knew there were shortcomings of the value framework approach. For example, we were looking at architectures that might have one set of sensors in a polar orbit and another set, set of sensors in an inclined orbit to look at variation of properties over the course of the day. And while for any given orbit, we could sort of get a reasonable expectation of the weighting uh, or the quality scores, it was hard to figure out, well, how much weight do you give one orbit over the other? Um, and, and there were certain variables that were just difficult to, um, we, we knew there were some factors that we were missing that we just struggled to figure out how to incorporate into the value framework system. So while it was a fairly reasonably objective approach, we had to be mindful of where its shortcomings were. Um, and I, I think in general, it, it did a good job uh, more broadly of distinguishing things that were really very capable versus things that weren't very capable, um, but not with a lot of um, precision that when you had two things that were close together, it was really hard to, to argue that one was really fundamentally better than the other if the scores were relatively close because there was still subjectivity in there that could weigh things one way or another. So it, it, it was good in a broad brush sense of saying, yeah, these are ones we really don't want to consider. These are really capable, but they're on the higher end of cost. And then kind of looking at, all right, well, is there a middle ground that gets a reasonable uh, science benefit score and you know, obviously fits within the, the cost constraints that we were working at? So that's kind of how the tool was used more or less. So, you know, recognizing that it was imperfect, it was complicated, but it, it did serve a purpose in kind of distinguishing different approaches to the constellations or architectures. 
to maybe follow mm -hmm. up on the the different architectures themselves in terms of putting things together did you i, I know like a, a tool of systems analysis is to generally start with you know like these these are kind of the high end uh you know answers we could have these are kind of the low end is that how you guys started by approaching it to to say like you know this system would be either you know like really expensive but very high resolution um you know we know that this kind of architecture wouldn't quite give us what we need and then a majority of the, the architecture study could then just be really trying to identify what should be in the middle a lot was geared toward that i mean again i think the first day of the first architecture construction workshop we, we did a few with the instruments that we really wanted and said yeah we can't afford that oh. and, and we already kind of knew that as useful as some of these very small satellite instruments are uh, yeah, they're, they're really geared toward um, sometimes just reproducing an observable that we already get, but in a smaller package that while that's nice and it can help with constellations to get improved sampling, uh, like a refresh rate, it didn't necessarily give us more advanced observations that would give us insight into the physical processes. Um, and, and so we, we kind of fairly quickly went toward excluding the cases we knew we couldn't afford and not doing too much overly focused on constellations of small sets, but instead playing around in the middle and kind of looking at families of architecture types. So some that might be geared toward polar observations and improved sampling, uh, then also getting the inclined orbit to get the you know, varying time of day, like when there's a diurnal cycle, you get a peak, say in the afternoon of thunderstorms and a minimum at night, that type of thing. Um, and, and then um, sometimes we'd have uh, just larger satellites with ca capable of instruments as we can do, sometimes a couple of mid-sized satellites and sometimes then folding in the small sats and mixtures of, of those. Um, and then once we found some that we thought represented reasonable families of architectures or, or types of architectures, then we would go in and say, all right, well, for this particular radar in this particular capability range, maybe we have five options. So let's do different architectures where we swap out different instruments to, that have somewhat different performance um, and, and see, you know, so you go from a, a general concept of a type of architecture and then you're doing a bunch of permutations on that. And so in the end, you might have five to 10 types of general architectures, but within each of those, you might have five to 10 variations. Uh, and that's why in the end, we, we probably had on the order of a hundred different architectures, but that was probably a very small subset of family or flavors of architectures, so, you know, if you will. Um, and so it looks like a big number, but in the end, it helped us to kind of zero in on the, on the broader approaches and then refine by just playing around with refinements of the in instruments and somewhat similar capability ranges. Yeah, no, I, I really like the family approach. I, there's an example that's like slipping my mind, but just, oh, maybe this is also, yeah, no, this is where I'm getting this from. I'm, I'm reading one of my other questions too is on uh, other resources, but um, I'm reading this great book 
called uh, A Whack on the Side of the Head, which is all about like creativity and different like strategies for thinking creatively. And I like one of the things they really drive home is um, uh, trying to understand what like similarities or differences are between things to help you draw parallels or conclusions that maybe you wouldn't think of otherwise. Um, and so that I, I think that just kind of made me think of some of the examples I was just reading about. But yeah, we did actually one of the first workshops we had looking at architectures, if I remember correctly, it's been a, several years now. I think that first one was in 2019. Um, I think the whole intent of it was to go in and think outside the box. You know, don't don't limit yourself in terms of ideas, but explore these big constellations or mixtures or different orbits and and such and, and not feel too constrained um that was good it got us thinking about things that maybe we wouldn't have uh thought about initially um but in the end it, it also <laughs> helped bring to light the you know the cost issues and the complexity issues that ultimately um you know constrained what we were able to do so that, that is part of the challenge. It's nice to think out of the box, but sometimes given the, we were constrained by the instrument library we had and, mm -hmm. and by costs. And, and so there's only so much you can do outside the box. And we did try to push those boundaries in, in terms of, you know, maybe a constellation of 20 small sats. And what does that do for you scientifically versus a big mothership that has the best capability? And, um, and, and so pushing on those boundaries you know, helps you understand all the more where those boundaries are and how solid they are. Yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, I'm curious too to ask more about just the the structure of these workshops and how you guys worked together. Um, I I know I don't know leading like group discussions is I don't know it when when I've done it sometimes it can it's difficult to kind of like. Um, you know, just keep everyone sort of on a, a consistent pace that's adding constructive information. Um, so I'm I'm curious how you guys set the workshops up. Were they, you know, multi-days where, you know, you said everyone is just going to sit in this room for a week and we're going to just sort through all of the information um, that, that we've collected and uh, it, if it was and then how you guys worked together to sort of present those and, and comb through, uh, you know, different permutations and combinations of things. Yeah. So, uh, at the workshops, uh, we started uh, generally you say started with identifying what architectures we wanted to do. So what was the goal of the particular architecture? What, what was the unique feature of it science wise that we wanted to accomplish, whether it was, a unique way of sampling things. Uh, we had some concepts that weren't just an instantaneous measurement, but were actually two identical instruments flying close in time. So you can get the time rate of change of the observable uh, and then infer things from that rate of change. And so we, we would try to think about what elements did we want to add to address the science. We, we'd come up with a list of, let's say a half dozen options. And then we'd work with the architecture design team um, we'd say, all right, here's the first case we want to do. They would get on their computers and they'd say, all right, well, I've got instruments of this mass um, and power requirement, and it creates this much data. 
So that means I need a spacecraft bus that has this such and such capability to accommodate the power, the weight, and the, the data downlink capabilities. And then if we were trying to spread that out over multiple satellites, they'd have to, to look at what what's sort of the, the minimum needed to accommodate the instruments. Um, and then we had assess the, the costs and, and where there were challenges, whether it was cost challenges, data downlink uh, issues, um, you know, where we were pushing the limits of power and weight requirements, especially if it would push us from one class of spacecraft bus to another more expensive one. Um, you know, that was something we were often paying attention to. So by the end of the day, we'd have results for several different options. Um, and then we would look at those, we, we discuss them, uh, see where we thought there, there were problems and um, usually then come up for the next day, another set of options and maybe poked at other different approaches, uh, looking at other boundaries. And, and, and so we, again, we come up with, with uh, a, a new set of options that might be a different class or family of architectures uh, and, and kind of repeat. And we do this over two or three days. Uh, and then once that was done, the, the, the science team would take uh, the information about the instrument capabilities to the extent that we had information on resolution, sensitivity, uh, and other aspects related to quality. And we do our qualitative assessment based on our experience. Yeah, this, this instrument I would rate on a scale of one to five, I'd give it a, a, a four and a half. And this one, yeah, the resolution's really coarse and it's not very sensitive. So maybe it's got a value of two. And then we combine those and, and look at the team's assessment to say, all right, well, were we getting something that at least on the surface appears to be scientifically useful? Um, and this was just in the early phases where we did this qualitatively. And then about a month later, we go back, we, based on our assessments, we come up with another set of architectures and we'd repeat the whole process again for several more days. And we did that two or three times in the first year. And then we spent more time developing the quantitative assessment capabilities. And then as we got into the second year, we started refining the architectures and, and we, the quantitative assessments were very time consuming. You, you had to, you know, to generate the simulated observations and then do the retrievals and do, analyze all that. And so even though we looked at a large number of options, we narrowed down to a, a fairly small set that we wanted to do a quantitative assessment for. Uh, and then we would compare those more quantitative results. Uh, and even after we did that in the second year, I, I think, right, you know, shortly before, in the months before we made a recommendation to headquarters about a final architecture, we went back and did additional refinements of those architectures, trying to stay within the cost constraints and maximizing the science capabilities uh, and then doing a final assessment. And so ultimately by the end of the study, I think it was around, um, I think it was September of 2020 that we, presented headquarters with our top three choices, which were different approaches to doing it. One was a polar orbit only, just US assets. Another was, I think, polar orbit with a mixture of US and international contributions. And then another was a combination of a polar orbit with an inclined orbit. Um, and then through additional discussions and evaluations, we made the final recommendation for that dual orbit scenario to headquarters. Um, so it was, a, it was a matter of just starting with the wide trade space and gradually narrowing it down, 
once we got it narrow enough, we got into more quantitative assessments and continued to refine and narrow and, until we can make a final recommendation. Gotcha. Along the way, did you solicit feedback from other people on the different architectures that, that you were sort of narrowing down on to I don't know, evaluate any other technical feasibility or um, just get it, get input on, on what people thought of, about them? Yeah. So we had um, as part, we had multiple teams um, as part of the whole team. So we had a science leadership team. We had uh, what we call the science impact team, which is the group that was doing the quantitative assessments. We had an applications impact team that uh, evaluated the utility of the observations for various applied science um, uh, aspects. Um, and then we had what we called a science community cohort <laughs> or SCC, which was basically an external body where we, they were non-NASA people, primarily from academia, but sometimes from other government labs. And they would do an assessment of the work uh, that we were doing on the architecture. So we, I think we had probably at least two rounds with them where we presented the, the architectures and the, the quantitative assessment. Uh, one of the first ones that we did, they came back and said, well, yeah, this is good, but you really need observations of say the uh, shortwave and longwave radiation associated with clouds and aerosols. So the solar and terrestrial radiation. We didn't have an instrument as part of the early uh, architectures that measured, say, the the solar radiative fluxes, um, and so we started then incorporating uh, an instrument that would provide some capability for doing that. Um, they also provided recommendations for what we could do in the inclined orbit to do the the polar observations were thought to be the priority for the mission, the the polar orbit. Um, but a lot of people recognize the value of capturing that diurnal cycle, because if you've got a, a feature like convection that over land, you know, develops in the afternoon, peaks during the, the early night and then fades away, if you're just observing twice a day in a polar orbit, there's a lot of evolution there you're never going to see. Um, and so they really strongly recommended that we find ways of providing at least some capability in that inclined orbit. It didn't have to be the most sophisticated, but it needed to provide some insight about how clouds and aerosols varied across the day. Um, and so it was input like that that we were getting that we would then incorporate into the next round of um, uh, architectures. And then I believe we had right the month before we made the final recommendation, we had a final meeting with them to go over the, the smaller set. I think it was really the, the final three architectures and we worked with them, discussed the advantages and disadvantages of each architecture um, so that we can get that community feedback. Uh, so that was an important way that we were trying to get the feedback. It was there. It was a reasonably sized group, maybe about 20 scientists from around the country. Um, I, I suppose it's possible you could find ways of going even broader than that, but you need to keep the problem manageable too. If you open it up too much, it's hard to collect all the input and, and get to really be able to gather the input that's useful. So keeping it somewhat constrained was, was useful. But yeah, so we had a few iterations with that uh, community uh, 
board that that helped out a lot in providing recommendations and then weighing in on our, our the final recommendation for the architecture. Uh, I'm I'm sure that also must have just been, you know, useful to you know kind of just just help measure like focus for the next decade that it, it's going to be it, you know the the right system at the right time I guess. Yeah, we and we were looking for things we wanted to some extent continuity with previous missions for creating climate data records, but we also recognized that it was important to try to make advances in the science as well. We didn't want to just do more of the same, and and so we tried to weigh to the extent to which we could maintain continuity of certain observables while still making significant advances. Um, whether the, those advances are technological within a given instrument, being able to do better with that instrument, or it was a combination of instruments that were never combined before that would give new insight through that combination. And, and so we had to weigh those different types of factors and, and having that outside perspective was incredibly useful. Um, I, I don't want to like abruptly cut anything off, but I do see that we're getting <laughs> to the top of the hour and uh, definitely want to be respectful of your time. So um I'm, I'm good for a bit. I don't remember if I even have a meeting uh, in the next hour. Nope, my meeting, the next meeting was canceled, so we can go longer. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, uh, cool. Was not expecting that. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, I guess if we've got a, a little more time, I'm, I'm curious to poke a little bit at the um, what you just mentioned about Oh, shoot, <laughs> uh, having to trade off building upon existing architectures, um, but also, you know, looking at how com combining new instruments could give you interesting insights. Was there, um, I, I guess, are, are there general observations that you, you found in interesting about that or, or any like major takeaways, I guess? Um, I'm not sure if there are major takeaways, but we, we the the team really kind of came from three different mission communities um that was the cloudsat community um which measured uh had a radar that profiled clouds but um didn't do as well in pre heavier precipitation there was a, a lidar community to measure aerosols and thin clouds uh and then the precipitation community is represented by trim gpm uh all of whom wanted to see some degree of continuation because CloudSat and Calypso were coming to an end soon. In fact, they, they came to an end, I think, last year um, after a pretty long run. Um, GPM is about, it's going to be celebrating its 10th anniversary uh, next month. And we're hoping to extend the, the mission uh, to around the time that AOS can launch so that we can actually have a bit of overlap between the, the radars and the two missions. Um, and, and the precipitation community really wants to have that continuity because it's used for a lot of applications, um, whether it's for storm monitoring like hurricanes, uh, for agriculture and water resources, um, you know, and a number of other areas where precipitation information is critical for um, applied users. And so, the, uh, having a, a radar to essentially calibrate the constellation of microwave sensors that are used for precipitation retrievals was viewed as being really critical. So 
we were getting input from a lot of communities uh, about what they saw as a priority, what they wanted to see. But again, we, we knew that we couldn't just do the same thing. And so we tried to incorporate um, new capabilities. So uh, e even though the Earth Care mission that's going to be launching this year is doing Doppler for the first time to get motions within uh, cloud systems, um, my understanding is it won't necessarily do well in uh, convective clouds, especially stronger convective clouds. So one of our goals was to get uh, more accurate measurements of vertical air motions in convective clouds, not only from the polar orbit um, that gives you global coverage, but across the, the different times of day. Um, we were looking to get do a better job of deriving aerosol properties um, through um, a high spectral resolution LIDAR approach. Um, unfortunately, that ultimately ended up getting um, uh, switched to more of a traditional mass scatter LIDAR. Um, but the goal was to get um, better estimates of the aerosol properties and also having the combination of instruments so that we were observing at the same time in the same location, aerosols, cloud and precipitation together uh, was viewed as being really important because most missions in the past we're measuring one of those or maybe two of those, but sometimes separated in time or, or um, you know, in, in ways that weren't really giving the, the coincidence that we wanted for these observables. And so that we viewed that as being really important and a key advancement as well. Um, and then we had some approaches to look at the time difference observations where you have two identical instruments flying a couple minutes apart that allow you to see the rate of change. And that rate of change may tell you something about um, processes within a storm. For example, in the architecture now, we have, uh, due to contributions from France, uh, two identical radiometers that will sample convection about two minutes apart. And the rate of change of the, of what we call brightness temperatures that are measured, um, tells us something about how rapidly the ice content of a thunderstorm is changing and the rate of change of that ice content is related to the condensation rate, which is ultimately related to the, the vertical motion within convection. So when you combine that information with the Doppler information on vertical motion, it gives you a very unique perspective of the, of the dynamics of convection. So it was things like that that we were looking to do, um, but always sort of having to stay within the, the various constraints, particularly for costs that uh, that we had to stay within. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting too, because I, I, you know, I, I feel like, oh, what am I trying to say? Um, you know, having to look back at at what missions have been conducted in the past, but also trying to just even map out like what missions are various organizations like working on that could launch within the next decade and. Uh, you know, where their weaknesses could be or what measurements might like that, that we could take that might, you know, marry well with, with other things. That's, that's kind of, that's a lot to hold in a trade space. And so um, I, yeah. I definitely commend you guys for having to like, look at, at all of that and how it all meshed together. Yeah. Well, it certainly led to some challenges too. Um... You know, one of the challenges we faced was always staying within the cost constraints. Um, and as is typical with uh, a lot of missions, you know, the, the 
cost estimates get refined over time and often work their way up more often than they work their way down. And so sometimes you have to do adjustments to the scope of the science, which mm -hmm. was something that we had to do, which is sort of some growing pains that you got to deal with. Um, and, and certainly in the current budget environment, it's you, know, you got to be very mindful of the cost. So, you know, that was ever present basically. Right. Um, and I think maybe a similar tangent. <laughs> um, I think one of the things I you know, really like about AOS is that it, it is an international partnership. And so, you know, by sharing in like the science, um, you know, share, sharing in the instrument capabilities that everyone can contribute, I, I feel like just helps share resources. It helps, you know, keep sharing technical capabilities and learning from one another. So I liked seeing that that was kind of an approach that the the mission took. Yeah, the, the international partnerships really enabled some science that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Uh, much of the inclined orbit um, uh, capabilities is, is the result of contributions from Japan and France. Uh, with with uh, they, They're providing some of the instruments and Japan is providing a big spacecraft for their radar. And then we're providing the spacecraft and uh, the LIDAR for uh, the other part of that orbit uh, project. Um, but it's enabling um, science at a small fraction of the cost if we were to try to do it all ourselves. So that was a, a huge benefit. And I think the, part, the, the, the partnerships across the globe are important too to extend the science community and not be so uh, parochial. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just focus on US science. I guess maybe a couple of closing questions sort of looking back on everything, is there anything that you would do differently if you were to do it again? Yeah, for me, I think it has to do with how ambitious we were with the architecture. Um, I, I think um, we, we were probably over ambitious with it. Um, trying to take on a bit too much. So that, that led to some of the scope adjustments that we've had, which always leads to some pain in the science community when you lose some of the capability. And we still have a, a great architecture that will enable uh, some great measurements. But anytime you have to kind of step, take a step back uh, from what you had set out to do, it's a painful process. Um, and, and so it's important to, to be realistic, uh, to not try to, um, try to beat down the costs to just fit in the box, but to give yourself room to grow and to make more conservative assessments of, you know, what, what you can make fit. Uh, I think that was one of the biggest challenges. Uh, and, and, and when you're dealing with a diverse community from what are really three different communities, aerosols, clouds, and precipitation, all having their own desired approach, it's very easy to get into a mindset of trying to do it all um and and you, you have to be pretty you have to keep it real you know keep it within you know reasonable limits and if i were to go back i i, I would there's still a lot that i i think is we would do similarly but we'd probably leave more room to grow um you know just given the the, the funding environment these days and and how missions often grow with time to some extent so right <laughs> No, I, I, I can imagine that, especially with, you know, the, like aerosols and cloud processes precipitate, like those are not simple 
fields like they're mm -hmm. deep and and there's a lot to them so i you know i i imagine even just like thinking about you know scope must have been just incredibly hard to like really really get within the right limits for for what mm -hmm. the mission needed yeah um i think maybe as a, a final qu closing question you know hopefully hopefully this is a fun one um <laughs> uh is there like a favorite <clears throat> problem that you've enjoyed solving in the past whether it be like a technical one or like not related to work or any anything like that i, I think for me the biggest problem it hasn't been a technical one although we've had our share but um for me it's a more of a personal one that i'm a total introvert and and trying to lead a, a big team as an introvert is exhausting and <laughs> and, and, a, and a real challenge um i i hope the team thinks that i'm <laughs> you know getting the the job done as, as well as i i hope i am um you know but you know, despite the stress of it, uh, it it's really been enjoyable working with a, a great team across multiple um, nasa organizations and, and universities and, and working with just some great people. I mean, that, that makes it worth it, despite the fact that I'm not always a people person. <laughs> yeah, it, it, um, it, it does make it worth it. <laughs> yeah, much agreed there. It really is all about the people, no matter what I work on, just you know, knowing that it's, it's with good people makes it all worthwhile. So definitely agree. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I appreciate your time so much. I definitely learned a lot. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people will get a lot to take away from the episode as well. So, um, yeah, this, this was excellent. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of The Art of Space Engineering. Now, the AOS architecture was not only a very complex problem to analyze, but a very important one as well. And I hope you found this conversation enjoyable and that you were able to gain something from it that can be useful to you as you work with trades on missions of your own. AOS is currently in phase B and working on preliminary design of the system and the instruments. Launches are currently planned for 2029 and 2031. If you want to learn more about AOS, you can visit the project's website, and links to that website as well as the paper that we were discussing can be found in the show notes. It's my goal to make the content on this podcast wide-ranging and focused on processes that are useful to engineers both young and experienced. That being said, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to connect with me via email or LinkedIn, and you can find both of those resources in the podcast description. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who might be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast source to get notifications on upcoming episodes. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah. <laughs>